It's Thursday, August 15th, 2019 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Sean McElwee sitting in for Mike Pesca. I'm a co-founder of Data for Progress, a progressive think tank and a general pain in the ass for centrists like Mike. In my one day of guest hosting, I aim to make The Gist competitive with the weeds. So we're going to have a deep dive on politics in the spiel. And right here at the top, I'm joined by Jordan Weissman, a man who I've spent uh, quite a couple of years harassing, and after that, a couple of years becoming a, a close friend of. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's been <laughs> years of harassment. But I feel like we are proof that a low-key commie and a mushy, uh, worn, <laughs> worn Democrat can still be friends. Which one am I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, and just to start off, uh, I want to do a rapid-fire on what's going on in the 2020 ideas primary, the, the primary I- of ideas. Let's talk about let's talk about the ideas. Yeah, like a sort of Rorschach, sorry, a Rorschach blot of policy. <laughs> is it just like you say some words and I interpret it? Okay, yeah. let's let's see. All right, you just Corey, say policy. I'm going to say policy. Yeah, Cory Booker's proposal to give bonds to babies. Uh, okay, closest thing to reparations that anyone has actually proposed. Uh, like actual reparations for Black families would do a lot to close the racial wealth gap. It's also a little bit of a Rube Goldberg device to do it. In England, the Cameron's government. The Conservative Party yeah. implemented a baby bonds program that used to be like the centrist policy. Oh, really? so, so it's just really interesting the way the framing has changed from like yeah. neoliberal centrism to now this is like reparations. Yeah. Well, uh, the reason for the, leftism. Yeah. Well, so I should probably double back and explain for people who haven't heard it. But the idea of baby bonds is really simple. You know how your grandmother gives you like a treasury bond, like when you're or like a, a treasury, like whatever. My but, grandma did not. Yeah, or whatever. It like, <laughs> gives you some gives you some like, you know, some bonds that you're going to redeem for like 100 bucks each in 20 years. Like it's literally just every time a kid is born, the government gives them a bond, like some savings. And then if they are poorer, they will then kick in more money over time. So the kid, once they turn 18, is going to have a nice big savings account that they can spend on whatever they want. And technically it's a universal program, but because it gives poor kids more savings over time, what ends up happening is black and Hispanic kids benefit disproportionately from it. And so it closes a lot of the racial wealth gap as a result. Um, so it's an interesting proposal. Again, it does take 18 years for like the kid to get the money, which is kind of the weird thing about it. And you can you can see there there are theoretical reasons for why that might not be a bad idea. But I mean, I don't I don't think it I wouldn't be opposed if someone wanted to do it. Uh, Kamala Harris's earned income tax credit expansion, the Lift Act. You know, if it were just that, if it were so, the earned income tax credit is basically the bonus payment we give to working class families every single year. That's what it is. It is a huge kind of anti-poverty program that's just embedded in the tax code. And a lot of people want to expand it. Um, Kamala Harris is like big policy that every time she gets asked during a debate, uh, what she wants, like the first thing she would do as president is this thing called lift, which kind of looks like an expansion of the earned income tax credit, but actually isn't. She's basically promised to spend $3 trillion making up to a $500 payment per month to families that earn less than $100,000. To repeat, if you earn less than $100,000 under her plan, she is saying she will give you up to $500 every single month. And that is going to cost $3 trillion. This is just like not going to happen. And to get into all the details of what's like weirdly designed and nonsensical about this policy would take, I could rant, I've written thousands and thousands of words about this, which has pretty much alienated me from the Kamala Harris campaign, but single-handedly, mind you, just that one thing. All right, I'm going to get you canceled. 
<laughs> she just it's I think it's her way of signaling that she just wants to throw a lot of money at people. And I actually don't mind in retrospect that she's proposed this because it tells me she does not give a fuck about the deficit, which is good. That is great. Uh, I want to ask you, what do you think about Bernie's Medicare for all plan? Uh, really glad that he ran he's run on it for, you know, two cycles now. I mean, it's never going to happen again. Like, it's just there are enough people in Congress who do not who will never, ever agree to it, even if Democrats take control, that it's just even if he gets rid of the filibuster, it's just not going to happen. Um, I don't even personally agree with it as as policy. Like if I were to pick a healthcare system to emulate, it would not be Canada's. And that's sort of what his is, is a supersized version of Canada's. I, I would probably want something that looks a little bit more like Australia's or New Zealand's. It's just me. But I am very glad he has run on it for the simple reason that, I mean, people talk about shifting the Overton window, right? The idea of shifting the debate. And oftentimes it's kind of a cliche, but in his case, he's really fucking done it. I mean, like John Delaney is supposed to be like the annoying centrist in the campaign who's anti-Medicare for all. And if you actually look at his healthcare plan, it's like pretty lefty. Like he basically, it is a universal government healthcare plan that just would leave a lot of room for supplemental insurance. And I mean, we, okay, actually the far right of the campaign is Joe Biden, which is a whole other thing because he just wants to like, he wants to pass a plan that would make Obamacare what it should have been 10 years ago. That's that's pretty much it. He wants to give more people subsidies and include a public option, things along those lines. You know, you don't want to, you want to know my take? What's your take? I think uh, Bernie's a centrist neoliberal. I know. Um, oh, yeah. For, for even allowing the private provision of healthcare. Oh, yeah, I know. So you want a straight up NHS. Hell yeah, man. You you want English style. I mean, you I want to you want to bend the goddamn cost curve. Yeah, I I'll know. show you how to bend the fucking cost curve. So I, I actually don't totally disagree with that. I mean, I there's no way we would be able to nationalize every hospital in America. But number one, it would make it a lot easier and more cost effective to create a national health care plan if we had more public hospitals. And that's how it works in most of the world. Like Australia's system functions partly because it has so many public hospitals. And so, yeah, I think that is a good long-term goal is to expand that. And also we're in a pretty good moment for states to start taking over failing private hospitals. There are so many rural nonprofits that are just going under because they can't sustain themselves. Good moment for states and municipalities to take them under their wing. All right. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's student debt cancellation plan. Uh, better than Bernie Sanders is a student debt cancellation plan. I think that some amount of student debt cancellation in the context of a overall redo on higher education with, say, free college involved kind of makes some sense. I don't think canceling student debt for people who went and got MBAs or Harvard Law degrees or medical degrees is necessary. Can you tell me a single policy from Joe Biden? Yeah. I, oh, Joe Biden? Yeah, Joe Biden. I mean, you know, his climate change plan is actually the best thing he's introduced, but I don't want anyone to talk about it. I, I don't want anyone to discuss that Joe Biden actually has a fairly ambitious climate change plan, because if he gets elected, he might be able to fool America into getting rid of coal. Just because everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's Uncle Joe. What's he going to do? I think that the quieter everyone stays about the fact that he's actually kind of not hard left, but he's leaning hard left on climate is just that's kind of a good equilibrium. I, I think Cole's probably doomed regardless of who the president is. You could make fucking Don Blankenship the president and Cole be doomed. Yeah, I think but. I think Don Blankenship would <laughs> literally require like would literally require Americans to give coal for Christmas. <laughs> it was like every parent must insert a, a brick of coal into their child's stocking. Um no, I I Cole's doomed no matter what, but I mean, in general, he has, I mean, he has a pretty, 
you know, he he is on board with going getting to zero net emissions within a somewhat realistic time frame. He's not just saying he has a fairly detailed outline of how to do it. He's not, you know, I mean, he's not like Inslee detailed, but he seems committed to it. It was one of the first things he rolled out. Like if I'm kind of genial, older, moderate shows up and decides that his low-key mission is going to be to save the world from climate change, great. Thank you so much for stopping in, Jordan. Everyone check out Jordan's amazing work at Slate. Thanks so much, man. Joining me now are two friends of mine, leading activists and intellectuals who have spent their life thinking about the environment and racial justice. Julian is the director of Green New Deal Strategy at Data for Progress, my think tank, and Adrian Salazar is a campaign strategist at Demos, a racial and economic justice policy organization based here in New York. So let's just start off, Julian, the the big sort of thing that the media is talking about these days when it comes to the environment is the Green New Deal. And the way that it's been covered is, in my opinion, quite frankly, despicable um, by the media. There's been characters of this policy um, talking about cow farts and (laughs) transnational airlines, um, but that's not really what it's about. Yeah, I mean, I think effectively we're a bunch of um, hippies who wear Birkenstocks and uh, want everyone to become vegan. So, no, I'm I'm completely joking. Um, But for the last sort of 20 to 30 years, the way in which most folks in the Beltway thought that we were going to get climate policy was you'd figure out what the most middle-of-the-road Republicans, someone like maybe, say, Susan Collins, would be comfortable with uh, signing their name onto and then sort of build the policy and, and coalition around that. So it was it was really sort of geared towards the workings of the institution from the inside. The Green New Deal approach, on the other hand, is is much more about sort of galvanizing the elements of the sort of left democratic base. Uh, you know, that is historically labor unions, uh, communities of color, of course, green groups, social movements, uh, most notably right now the Sunrise Movement, which is a youth climate movement, and trying to sort of figure out the ways in which we can build a, a climate coalition that can get legislation across the finish line, which is, of course, what needs to happen. But also, more importantly, or, or equally importantly, figure out uh, a set of policies that really get buy-in from Americans that that are durable. Because, of course, if we pass climate legislation and it gets repealed, you know, in two years when the Congress flips, then we really actually haven't tackled the problem. There's this theory of the case that centrists make, like, oh, we are, we're the ones who are in touch with public opinion. We're the ones who have these, like, solutions that actually work. And you lefties uh, need to shut the fuck up. But with climate, we're actually seeing centrists are the ones who are pushing the unpopular policy that's not up to the task. Um, Can you all speak to just really quickly sort of the role that co-pollutants and mandates and stuff like that, like, what's the political case for why we should be ignoring these market mechanisms and really having a robust role for government intervention in in climate. And I'll, I'll send this to Adrian. So I can see why young people f- have a lot of faith in this vision. I can see why really strong progressive candidates are about the vision for a Green New Deal. And I think that's what is, is happening in this moment, is you have two narratives uh, that are fighting 
over what we're going to address the climate crisis with. One says the government is critical and we can do it through massive investment and mobilizing our entire economy. And the other stuff is like shooting, you know, flies about banning uh, hamburgers and, and, and airplanes. So... We, we have an opportunity here to, to really um, shift the historic trend, and I think the Green New Deal, the vision of the Green New Deal is what's really powerful for people. Luckily, you know, we are, we are facing a, a centrist sort of consensus that, especially on climate change, has almost no merits to its case, you know. And around the world, in places like France, in Australia, uh, a price on carbon was really unpopular and was repealed by uh, new governments that that uh, that came into power. You know, the it's yellow vest movement in France. It's not. It's not as efficient. It doesn't create uh, political support. And I think in 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 Canada, for example, we're going to have another. There's going to be an election in Canada in the fall. And I think the you know the carbon price and tax is going to be a major part of that. And so we'll have another sort of data point to see you know how people really feel about this being the dominant way in which we approach the issue. Right. I mean, a carbon tax has failed twice now in Washington, which is one of the most liberal states in the in the country. And in fact, there was some a political scientist did the did the analysis and said, if we got the same percentage among the different um, voters in any state in the country, it still wouldn't have passed. And basically like modeling out based on the precinct results there. So it's definitely like clear we need a new approach. So I kind of brought you guys on a little bit to cheer me up Mm because like I, I, I like don't even know if I should save money. Like low key, like what's the point in, you know, putting money in a savings account if 30 years from now we're all going to live in, like, anarchy. But, like, here's what really makes me, like, terrified, right? I look at the 2020 election, right, and, like, the Green New Deal, it's getting more attention. Democrats are talking about it in the debates. And if, like, magic happens, like, the one of the most amazing things that could ever happen to Democrats and progressives is we take the Senate in 2020. And if we take the Senate, the swing vote is Joe Manchin. And if we take the Senate and we somehow get another seat, the swing vote is Kristen Cinema. And if we take another seat, it's like Tom Carper. And so we're at this place where like you have to take like 15 seats before you get to a point where like Gary Peters is the guy you're persuading, <laughs> which is bad. And then like what if we pass it and then John Roberts is like, uh, we just decided that freedom of uh freedom of expression includes the, the, the that Emissions of carbon are First Amendment protected <laughs> um, speech. So I, I guess like make me less depressed. Like what what where are we able to see like locusts of action that can actually reduce emissions? Because it's sort of interesting and notable to me that the Sunrise Movement is talking about you know decarbonizing in a much more rapid time frame. And at the same time, we're seeing like Cuomo being like 2050 is too fast for me still. So I guess I'm I'm sort of like where like where do you guys see hope? So firstly, I think that I would see hope in the growing social movement uh, for climate action and climate justice across the country. Very briefly, um, you know, if you were born in sort of the pre World War One moment, it would have been very hard to imagine all of the European empires disintegrating within within about 50 years, right? But that did, in fact, happen. Uh, and the way in which it happened was through, often, you know, in places like uh, India, was through, like, nonviolent 
civil resistance. Uh, of course, similarly, uh, you know, the history of, of civil rights in this country was accomplished primarily by people putting, you know, people of color putting themselves forcefully in the places of segregation and demanding civil rights, demanding equality. So I, I do believe that there are moments where people organized uh, in the streets taking action can really accelerate the conversation. And I think that speaks to like sort of what what is sometimes called like the Overton window, right? By moving right. the Overton window with the Green New Deal, you make other ideas seem more palatable, which is why we need to move the Overton window on the Green New Deal by you, Adrian, primarying Ocasio-Cortez from the left <laughs> and saying the Green New Deal is ca- too capitalist and we it's need— too centrist. We do. We need 10% of all of U.S. GDP should be directly sent to the global south uh, in order to mitigate the effects of climate change. But but I think that's I, like the, the international— <laughs> That sounds aspect. like a good plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, so the name of the policy is the Green New Deal— and there's been a lot of awareness, I think, recently about the racial exclusion in the New Deal itself. And so I want to throw it to you, Julian, like what, how, what do you think about the branding of the Green New Deal and what, what needs to be done to ensure we recreate the political ambition of the New Deal without the compromises fundamentally that the New Deal made for people of color in this country? Yeah, so I think— Firstly, it would have been great if we called it the Green Reconstruction, which was my vote back before November oh, 2018. Like that. But that that ship has sailed, unfortunately. The New Deal had a, a, a very his, uh, troubling history of racial exclusion. Uh, it included, uh, obviously, it sort of included a number of compromises with Jim Crow, which was the sort of dominant social system in the U.S. South, which was Repub- which was controlled by the Democratic Party, uh, and therefore anything that needed to be done through the New Deal required a uh, compromise with the Dixiecrats, as they were called. And so that led to things like, you know, redlining and the exclusion of black people from the dominant mode of wealth creation for families in this country, which is the mortgage. And, you know, I think that as we sort of work through the Green New Deal, obviously we are using the term New Deal. We have to take very seriously uh, the ways that, in particular, social democratic policies like the New Deal perpetuated and set the stage for uh, enduring and, in some ways, deepened racial inequality and exclusion. Yeah, the, this moment is just incredibly important for the amount of action that we have to take. We have a very scientifically prescribed window for meaningful action on climate, and it is in, in single-digit years at this point. And we have to be able to galvanize ourselves, our, our movements, our organizations, around the political opening that the Green New Deal has put before us because a, a moment like you know what was the major federal climate opportunity before this it was waxman marquee that was over 10 over 10 years ago mm-hmm. and and here we have before us the green new deal uh and 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 not only is it uh an opening it is on top of the increasing severity of the climate crisis the increasing salience of it across the american people's and the, the public's mind and so we have to take it upon ourselves as organizers as advocates as pollsters as environmental justice leaders to really um, take a hold of this moment 
and intervene in all of the at every level, at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, um, because if we don't get this right, humanity loses. And that's, you know, that's where we are. But like I said earlier, there are solutions everywhere rising up um, from the grassroots up to the states to the federal level. And it's in investing in those solutions and and building networks and building movement with one another that we're going to win. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sean. This was great. Thanks, Sean. And now, the spiel. Pop quiz. How many times do you think, in this century, an incumbent House Democrat lost a primary only to see his or her replacement lose the seat to the Republican Party? The answer may surprise you. It happened once. That was in West Virginia in 2010, when corrupt incumbent Alan Mullahan lost to right-wing Democrat Mike Oliveriero who's now a Republican, and then a Republican flipped the district. It's important to note that Obama had lost the district by 15 points, and Mullahan was involved in an ongoing corruption scandal. And it's not like Mullahan was losing to an Ocasio-Cortez or an Ayanna Presley. Oliverio ran on an anti-choice and anti-gay marriage platform, and he ran to Mullahan's right with Tea Party support. Here's how I know it's an an exception. I talked to Clark University political science professor Robert Boatwright. He analyzed every primary since 2000. And that was the only instance he could find in which an incumbent Democrat who was elected as a Democrat lost a primary to a non-incumbent and then the district flipped red. Now, there are a couple of sort of weird exceptions to that. In 2000, Michael Forbes, a Long Island representative, they switched from a Republican to a Democrat. He lost a primary, and then the Republican won the general. So the point is, when we're looking at all the instances since 2000 in which what the center of the Democratic Party is worried about with primary challenges, there's not a lot of evidence for it. So if anything, the biggest threat to the Democratic Party has been right-wing Democrats primarying more mainstream Democrats. What I'm saying is there's no reason for Democrats to be afraid of moving to where their base is on issues. AOC's win last year, it's an unalloyed good. The Democratic Party now has a dynamic new face that can fight for our values in public and stands for the values that the Democratic base holds. I run a think tank called Data for Progress. We do a lot of polling. We do a lot of work to make sure that our polling reflects reality. So we're constantly checking against other nonpartisan pollsters. We found that our results are perfectly consistent with the type of questions that are coming from Pew and Gallup when we have the same wording. I'm not saying that every single progressive policy that we've ever polled is popular, and we're open about it when it's not. We pulled a universal basic income and we said on our website, we didn't think this was the type of policy that could help Democrats win nationwide because it's not. It's something that's underwater in almost every state in the country. But there are some progressive policies that are not. For example, one of the ideas that we think is the most exciting and has now been picked up by an increasing number of Democratic presidential candidates is the idea of creating generic versions of life-saving drugs. Many voters find it absurd that private companies hold monopolies 
on drugs and are able to increase those prices hundreds of hundreds and hundreds upon percents, often depriving people of necessary medical care. When we polled the idea that the government should be able to strip those companies of patents if those drugs become too expensive and allow for generic versions to be created, we found that 51% of voters were supportive, only 21% opposed, and the other didn't know enough to make up their minds. We tried another policy. During the 2018 election cycle, we heard a lot of discussion about why Democrats need to be afraid of Medicare for all. You don't have to trust me at Data for Progress. As part of his polling project with Siena, Nate Cohen from the New York Times tested single payer in five districts. He didn't ask me how to word the question. He decided it himself. And what he found was that in every swing district he tested, single payer had more support than opposition. According to an academic data set, the Cooperative Congressional Election Studies Survey, 70% of voters who voted for Trump and then voted for a Democrat in 2018 support Medicare for all. And what about gun control? 66% of voters who voted for Trump and then switched to a Democrat in 2018 support a ban on assault weapons. The point being is the voters who we are trying to persuade agree with us on many of our core values, and we shouldn't be afraid to hold them. And another reason we shouldn't be afraid to hold them is because the Democratic Party is seeing a seismic shift that is going to occur over the next several years. The reason for that shift is that a new generation of Democrats who came of age watching George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, they're entering into their peak voting years, that is, the ages of 40 to 60, where they're most likely to turn out not just for presidential elections, but up and down the ticket. What do they believe? According to polling that we've done of Democrats and independents who plan to vote in the Democratic primary, 53% of Democratic voters aged 18 to 29 strongly agree that generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for African Americans to work their way up. That's a pretty lefty idea. And that compares to only 27% of Democratic primary voters who are 65 and older. There's this idea out there that people who run in primary challenges are sort of out there and too socialist. That's not really the case. I edited a weekly newsletter called Primaries for Progress, and we look at all of the primaries. Let me give you a little bit of a flavor. In Texas 28th, there's a Latina school teacher who supports Medicare for All. She's running against Henry Cuellar, the incumbent blue dog Democrat. But he's hardly a Democrat. He endorsed George W. Bush, and he votes with Donald Trump more than 70% of the time. And he takes lots of money from organizations backed by fossil fuel industries. So why is it seen in the media that the teacher who represents the values of the Democratic Party is extreme, whereas the so-called Democrat who endorsed George W. Bush is the mainstream. It's all flipped up. Take another one, Illinois' third, where Dan Lipinski is facing a primary challenge from Marie Newman. Here's the thing about Dan Lipinski. There was a recent vote in the House to enshrine gay rights as civil rights. Every Democrat supported it, except for one. That one was Dan Lipinski. Dan Lipinski is also the only Democrat who is on the pro-life caucus. He's flatly outside of the Democratic mainstream. You know how he got his seat? His father basically gifted it to him in a backroom deal 
with machine bosses, they decided that he was going to pass off his seat to his son after the primary had happened by swapping him out on the ballot. Is somehow Marie Newman the bad one for challenging that illegitimate authority and challenging that illegitimate Democrat who doesn't hold those values? I don't think so. And it's absurd to say that Illinois' third, a district that Clinton won by more than 10 points, is somewhere where we need a Democrat who doesn't support abortion rights and doesn't believe that gay people should have civil rights. I'm the one who's pragmatic, and to be entirely frank, it's the party that's being absurd. Newman is clearly has the values of the voters of that district. Dan Lipinski's out of touch. You may be surprised to learn, though, that the Democratic Party is not making it easy for Marie Newman to win a primary against Dan Lipinski. Now, you have to understand how the Democratic Party works. There's something called the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. I'll call it the DCCC for the rest of this spiel. The DCCC is the congressional arm of the Democratic Party. It oversees all of the House elections. And instead of letting the primary play out in a fair way, they're trying to kneecap Marie Newman. They have told any vendor who works with her who helps her create digital ads, who helps her with polling, who helps her with canvassing, they've said to those people, we will permanently bar you from ever working with the DCCC. That doesn't make sense to me. In this case, Dan Lipinski agrees with nothing that the other Democrats in his own caucus support, whereas Marie Newman holds the values that are more mainstream. Why is the DCCC intervening into this primary to protect someone who has shown that they don't care about the women, the people of color, and the LGBT people who make up the Democratic base? After the 2016 election, I, like most Democrats, was pretty stunned. And so I spent the next year trying to figure out what happened. I worked with several academics who I trust and who do some of the best work in the field. And one of the things that we found was pretty jarring. We found that between 2012 and 2016, there were millions of Obama voters who dropped entirely out of the electorate. They disappeared. We called them the Obama non-voters. And I had a little bit of hope after that, because what I realized is that if we could get those voters back into the electorate, we would win again in 2020. But if we couldn't get those voters back into the electorate, we would have another four years of Donald Trump. And those voters are the future of our party. They're the base. They were disproportionately young, people of color, and low income. Those are the people that the Democratic Party is supposed to serve. Those are the people who put AOC in Congress. Those are the people who put Ayanna Pressley in Congress. Those are the people who want to see Marie Newman defeat Dan Lipinski. And the thing that worries me the most is that if the Democratic establishment keeps going to war with those voters, they will become permanently disengaged. They will see nothing that benefits them in the political system. And we're not just going to see another four years of Trump. We're going to see more and more politicians who exploit that disillusionment just like he has been doing. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. If you want to read more about the data that I used in the spiel, you can check us out at dataforprogress.org. At Twitter, we're at dataprogress, and I'm at Sean McElwee, S-E-A-N-M-C-E-L-W-E-E. Um Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>